0: In this interview, I'm joined by Dr. David Spiegel. Dr. Spiegel is an author, psychiatrist and professor at Stanford University and one of the world's leading experts into the clinical applications of hypnosis. He has published 13 books, over 400 scientific articles and 170 chapters on hypnosis, stress physiology, trauma and psychotherapy. In this conversation, we discuss... Dr. Spiegel's groundbreaking research into how hypnosis can be applied in a clinical setting to improve client outcomes, what's happening in the brain during hypnotic states of mind, a simple test for identifying if you are hypnotizable or not, why hypnosis can be a powerful treatment for trauma, and more. You can learn more about Dr. Spiegel's self-hypnosis Reverie app by going to www.reverie.com, and that's reverie with an I at the end. Dr. Spiegel, welcome to the summit. Um, For anybody that isn't aware of you and your work, could you maybe tell us a bit about your background and maybe what sparked your initial interest in hypnosis?
1: Sure, well, uh, I'm an academic psychiatrist. I uh, do research uh, at Stanford University where I've been for a very long time. Uh, I did my training at Yale and at Harvard And my interest in hypnosis as a psychiatrist comes from a desire to help people deal with stress, with mind and body problems, and using a technique that um, struck me as being very effective and having fewer of the complications that many of our other treatments in psychiatry do. Um, Hypnosis is something of a genetic illness in my family, since both of my parents were psychiatrists and psychoanalysts. they told me I was free to be any kind of psychiatrist I wanted to be. And so I took them up on it. My father um, was training to be a psychoanalyst, um, but got taught hypnosis when he went off to combat in North Africa in World War II. And he found it to be surprisingly effective to help people with pain uh, when they were wounded, to help them with acute stress reactions. And uh, I, um couldn't resist. The the dinner table conversations were interesting. I got to watch him make films of some of his patients. And when I got to medical school, I took a hypnosis course. And my first patient um, was a 15-year-old girl um, with status asthmaticus, a children's hospital in Boston. That meant she just kept wheezing, had trouble breathing had been twice unresponsive to epinephrine injected under her skin. They were thinking about general anesthesia for her. She'd been hospitalized every month for three months in status. And I didn't know what else to do. So uh, I walk in the room, her mother is standing there crying. She's bolt upright in bed, knuckles white, struggling for breath. And I said to her, would you like to learn a breathing exercise? And she nodded. So I got her hypnotized. And then I realized we hadn't gotten to asthma in the course yet. So I came up with a very clever instruction. I said, each breath you take will be a little deeper and a little easier. And within five minutes, she's lying back in bed, her knuckles aren't white, her mother stopped crying, she's breathing better. Nurse ran out of the room and my intern came looking for me and I thought he was gonna pat me on the back and say, good job, Spiegel. And instead he said, "Uh, the nurse filed a complaint with the nursing supervisor that you violated a Massachusetts law by hypnotizing a minor without parental consent. And Massachusetts has a lot of weird laws, but that's not on the list. And uh, he said, so you're going to have to stop doing this with her. And I said, look, you were going to put her on steroids and considering general anesthesia, and you think this is dangerous. He said, uh, well, you have to stop doing it. You won't be able to see her. And I said, I'm in Boston. I'll see her as long as necessary. So I, um, I said, tell you what, as long as she's my patient, I'm not going to tell her something I know is isn't true. And if you wanna take me off the case, go ahead. So over the weekend, the intern, the resident, the chief resident, the attending got together and finally hammered out a radical solution. They said, let's ask the patient. I don't think that's ever been done before there. And um, she said, I like this. Now she had one subsequent hospitalization, but then went on to study to be a respiratory therapist. And I thought that anything that could help a patient that much, that fast, that safely um, violate a non-existent Massachusetts law I had to be worth looking into. And so that got me started doing research on what hypnosis was and um, how to use it and how well it works. And I'm still doing it. That's, that's so interesting. I just thought it had that, that kind of effect.
0: You know, I could see why that would really open this up for you as a something you want to get further, more into. Um, so can you tell us about what your working definition of hypnosis
1: is? A hypnosis is a state of highly focused attention. It's a narrowing of the focus of attention, sort of like getting caught up in a good movie. You get—you—you you may have had this experience that you, you just forget you're watching a movie and you enter the imagined world. It's been called believed-in imagination. And it's coupled with uh, what I call a cognitive flexibility, an openness to seeing things from a different point of view without judging and evaluating them for a while but just experiencing the idea and in in order to do that you experience dissociation the ability to disconnect one aspect of experience from another and um so you you kind of clear your mind of distracting things and focus intently on the center of your attention like looking through the telephoto lens of the camera
0: Really interesting. And one of the things I find interesting that you, you say, Dr. Spiegel, is, you know, most people would associate hypnosis or the hypnotic state with with losing control. But it seems that it's actually gives people more control.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about that? That's you're absolutely right, Niall. It's um uh, people you know, have uh, you know images of hypnosis being the hypnosis taking over control, but you're absolutely right that it's a way of enhancing control over your mind and your body, focusing intently on what you want to focus on and controlling what happens in your body in a way that you wouldn't think would be possible. We did an experiment once where we were studying the secretion of gastric acid, which happens when you eat. When you eat a meal, you'll secrete more gastric acid so that you can digest the food. And we had a a nasogastric tube down. We met people in the morning before they'd eaten anything and had them eat an imaginary meal. And um, we were traveling around to imaginary restaurants in the Bay Area. And one woman after a half an hour said, let's stop, I'm full, just eating imaginary food. Um, We got an 89% increase in gastric acid secretion just eating imaginary food. And then we tried the opposite. We said, Imagine something relaxing that doesn't involve food or drink. And we got a 39% decrease in gastric acid secretion. And so then we injected them with pentagastrin, which stimulates maximal parietal cell output of gastric acid. And we still had a 19% reduction in gastric acid. So we, none, nobody thought we could do it, but the brain can either increase or decrease gastric acid secretion using hypnosis. And so it's very it's powerful for controlling pain, uh, for uh, handling stress, uh, for helping people sleep. There are lots of things it can do. So you're absolutely right that it seems like a loss of control, but it's really a substantial increase in control of mind over body. That's incredible.
0: Yeah. Um- so I'm just curious, have you thought much about why this, abil- this ability would evolve in human beings? You know, what, what would the adaptive
1: benefit of this, this have been? Well, I've wondered about that. And my, my thought about it is this, you know, our major adaptive advantage, the thing that allowed us to survive over animals that were much bigger, much faster, much stronger, more aggressive than we are, is this big brain and an opposing thumb, which is a good idea, but doesn't help all that much. And the brain allows us among other things to be strategic about where we are and what we do if we're under threat. Um, If you can control your tendency to move or run or scream, uh, if you can control your pain, you're actually more likely to evade a predator. You know, Predator animals like us have eyes on the front of their head. Prey animals have eyes on the side of their head to, to view their surroundings. And if you, one of the things that predators detect is movement. And so if you have a, a very well-developed ability to freeze, to not respond, not move when you're under threat, I think you have a better chance to survive, and so I'm guessing that the uh, the, ex, the large ability you have to control uh, your sensory experience and your motor function in a state like hypnosis uh, confers an adaptive advantage, and that's my guess about why we've got it. Really interesting. So it's linked with
0: inhibition, then I suppose it's. Uh... Yes.
1: Yes. Right.
0: Um, now, most of the people that are watching this and you know tuning in will be um, mental health professionals, you know, psychotherapists, psychologists, people working uh, one-on-one with clients, and you know, I, I think it's. I just I'd like to ask you know why is it important for people in these professions to be aware of hypnosis and and how it works?
1: Well, um, there are a number of reasons. Uh, one is that it's a highly effective treatment tool. Um, it's uh, a way that in a hurry, you can help people reduce their pain, reduce their anxiety, manage stress better, um, get to sleep better. So it's, it's, you know, I think a very valuable tool uh, in the array of possible treatments that psychotherapists can use. I think it's also something to be aware of, even if you're not formally using hypnosis, that people... Some people can shift into these intense states and be more cognitively flexible, change their perception of their their mind and their body. And even if you're deciding, I'm not going to be using hypnosis, at times you are. When you have those moments of intense connection with the subject, when they suddenly seem to respond very profoundly to something that you're uh, proposing to them, you may be in the patient. And you may be slipping into a hypnotic domain, and it's good to know something about it. 100%. Now, you've mentioned
0: cognitive flexibility a couple of times, Dr. Spiel. Can mm-hmm. you maybe just give us a bit of a breakdown what, what what that actually is and what that involves?
1: Well, you know, the old idea and the one that that I think scares a lot of people is suggestibility. You know, the idea that, and, you know, they get that from the, you know, stage show hypnosis where the, Football coach dances like a ballerina and makes a fool of himself, you know, because the guy told you to do it. And, um, you know, we are all to some extent suggestible. I mean, God knows 70% of Republican adults are, are crazy enough to think that Trump won the last election. You know, we, we are social creatures. We are susceptible of social influence. So um, in hypnosis, because you're narrowing the focus of attention you're more likely to try the experience and less likely to think about the consequences of it. And so that is in a sense suggestibility, but we all are to some extent suggestible. We take in input from other people and sometimes believe it even when we shouldn't. But it's also a cognitive flexibility. It's a way of saying, you know, this guy proposes to me that I can actually control my pain without taking a drug. Why don't I give it a try? And sometimes that actually works, that, that you can change your perception of pain uh, without thinking about it. And one, one simple example for you and your, your listeners is right now you're sitting in a chair listening to me, and hopefully you were not aware of the sensations in your bottom touching the chair until I brought it to your attention. If you were, we probably could stop the interview right now. Um, and so the brain is very good at doing that. And if you can do that with everyday sensations, you can also learn to do it with troubling sensations like pain. I had a woman um, who was pregnant and had bad lower back disc disease, and they couldn't give her medication for it because of her, her pregnancy. But by the time she got to the seventh month, it was the pain was getting worse and worse. And it was about eight out of 10 when she came to see me, she tried, they'd implanted a transcutaneous nerve stimulator that wasn't working. And I had her hypnotized and imagined she was floating in a warm bath. And I said, just filter the hurt out of the pain. And she opened her eyes and she said, why are you the last doctor I got sent to instead of the first? And her pain was down to about three. She said, I can live with this, this is fine. So people, the suggestibility involves or cognitive flexibility involves accepting an unusual premise and trying it out and seeing what it's like rather than rejecting it out of hand, you say, well, let's see what it feels like and I'll decide then. And, um, that's, that's what hypnotic cognitive flexibility is.
0: Very interesting. Now, I've heard you say before that it's, it could be compared to a dissociation between, somatic reactions and psychological reactions so it's an ability to sort of separate what's happening in the body and what's going on in the mind is that is that accurate or am i getting that getting that well
1: it's it's something like that the dissociation is is a part of it that we we can learn to disconnect um our experiences from our expectations of what the experiences will be like or one aspect of experience from another um, and you know one example of the way our brain is wired to dissociate is uh, the difference between episodic and procedural memory. So episodic memory is, you know, it's, it's computationally expensive. It involves remembering a context and remembering what you did and who was there and wh- what, what you were doing while you were there. Um, so for example, uh, you type on a keyboard or you ride a bicycle And you can do it without remembering a thing about who taught you and how you learned and what that process was like. So procedural memories are stored in different parts of the brain and the motor and parietal cortex. Episodic memories are stored in the medial temporal lobe and the hippocampus. And so from the very beginning, we're taught to separate aspects of experience and performance. And in hypnosis, you're able to dissociate one element of experience from another. You may not remember uh, at the moment what the hypnotic instruction was, but you're doing it. You're, you're floating in a warm bath, and you're filtering the hurt out of the pain. And you're not thinking about, well, who is this guy to tell me to do this? You're just trying on the experience and seeing what it's like. So this ability to dissociate or disconnect one aspect of experience from another is part of the way our brains are built, but it's a matter of taking advantage and using it so that you can disconnect elements of experience. Cool. Now, I know that two thirds of
0: adults are hypnotizable and one third aren't. I'm curious, which category do you fall into there? And (sighs) also how has you know, ha- having this knowledge and, you know, being one of the words leading experts in this area, like, how do you actually apply this in your own life? You know, you must be able, you must have a very good sort of um, control over your autonomic state, I suppose.
1: Well, I do my best. I'm, I'm moderate to highly hypnotizable. I'm not the most, but I'm pretty hypnotizable. I uh, had a recurrently dislocating shoulder when I was a resident and uh, it was getting to interfere with my life. So I decided to have surgery for it. And um, the procedure itself was three hours long. And I decided to have general anesthesia, although I wasn't wild about that. But afterwards, I was just doing self-hypnosis for pain control. I wasn't taking any pain meds. And um, I went and read my medical record. I wasn't supposed to do that as a patient, but I also worked at Mass General. So no, the nurses didn't stop me. And the Surgical um, resident wrote patient using very little pain medication. We mustn't have cut many nerves. Now, you know, I have a scar from here to here. They cut a lot of nerves, Uh, but it felt fine to me to just, you know, filter the hurt out of the pain. So I, I've used it for pain. I've used it to, to help get to sleep. I've used it for, for stress management. I even used it to learn how to water ski. I kept falling down water skiing. And I did a little self-hypnosis and just sit arms straight, knees bent. You know, you normally do the opposite. You bend your arms and you bounce back and forth and you keep your legs straight so you can't push in the movement. So when I just programmed my brain to do it the right way, I managed to stay upright. So uh, I, yeah, I, I use it. In fact, once going to London, I'll never forget this. I had a horrible flight over. I didn't sleep and the jet lag was awful and I had a terrible headache. And I was struggling to get some pence into the machine to give me some aspirin in the, the restroom and it didn't work. And I was really feeling miserable. And I'm bouncing along on this double-decker bus into London and, and I think to myself, you idiot, you teach people self-hypnosis, use it. And there I was five minutes later, sort of surprised that my headache went away. <laughs> so, so yeah, I use, it. I use it myself when I remember to do it. <laughs> Very cool. Um, so maybe now it would be a
0: good time to make, make the distinction between uh, stage hypnosis and clinical hypnosis. What are the main differences? And I know I'm aware you're not a fan of stage hypnosis.
1: No, I'm, not. I'm not, I, I don't like making fools out of people. And I, you know, I don't like doing that with the help of hypnosis. And so it makes it into this kind of stage show phenomenon. And I, I kind of like it to, you know, a snake oil salesman for drugs. I just don't approve of it. Um, they, they use a trick that is, you know, they have an audience of some size and they can't just do it with anyone. So what they start off in the first half of their show is bringing people up, trying stuff out. If it works, they keep them. If not, they send them back because they're screening the audience for the, you know, 10 to 15% who are extremely hypnotizable, who dissociate in the extreme. And then they have them do these strange things. But even then, bad things can happen. So there was a woman who uh, this guy was entertaining the audience by saying, look, there's a, there's a bird cage in your hand and there's a beautiful little bird. And she's going playing along with this. And um, he then says, we're gonna open the cage and let the bird fly up. And suddenly she starts to shake and to cry. And he, he didn't like this, this wasn't good for the show. So he kind of rushed her off the stage. And she was found wandering around the streets of Manhattan at about two in the morning, disoriented and um, was brought to my father's uh, practice then. And he found out that she was a, the wife of a very wealthy man um, who felt like a bird in a gilded cage and the, the bird wouldn't leave the cage. And so it became symbolic for her of everything that was wrong with her life. And that's why she got so upset. In a clinical situation, that would be fine. You, know, you say, okay, let's figure out how to help you sort out your life. But in that situation, it wasn't. And, and so I don't like people who are not trained clinicians and who don't have the best interests of the person at heart uh, to engage in this because the person is trusting you. They're, uh, they're surrendering to you a certain amount of their critical judgment and saying, you structure my experience for me and I'll take it in and have it. And, and in the clinical setting, that's fine. In the setting where people are trying to learn for themselves how to manage their lives better, that's fine. Uh, but in in the, the setting of making somebody look silly, uh, it's not one hundred percent. So your lab at Stanford has been sort
0: of like leading the way in researching clinical hypnosis the past few decades. And yeah. I'm just curious, you know, what what would you say are the most important things that you've you've learned through your research? And has anything that you've learned surprised you in the in recent years?
1: Um, well, we've uh, there are the sort of two levels on which we've learned a lot. We've we've studied how effective it is in helping people. And we published a paper in the Lancet, the leading British medical journal um, uh, in 2000. It was a randomized trial of patients undergoing uh, percutaneous radiological procedures, threading catheters up the Arteries to, to um, visualize constrictions in arteries or to uh, give chemoembolization of tumors in the liver or something like that. It's a pretty serious procedure. We don't use general anesthesia for it, but you have a cut down into an artery and people are scared and sometimes have pain. And we randomized patients, about 240 of them, into one of three conditions standard care, which meant they could press a button and get IV opioids um that plus a friendly nurse comforting them or that plus training in hypnosis and we found uh in this randomized trial that the in the hypnosis condition uh patients um uh had it after um an hour and a half uh, their pain level was 1 out of 10 and in the standard care group it was 5 out of 10 um Their anxiety, they were so unanxious, I was afraid they were dead. The anxiety scores were all zero. They were just lying there comfortably. And the procedures got done 17 minutes quicker on average, and they had um, uh, fewer complications by far. And they were using half the amount of opioids that the patients in standard care were. So it was quicker, they were less anxious, they had far less pain um, and fewer medical complications. and. You know, we published that in The Lancet, if, if, um, if a drug did that, everybody in, the, in our country would be using it now, but people just either think hypnosis doesn't work at all, or it's dangerous, but they don't get it, that it is just a safe and effective way for people to better manage their pain and anxiety. So that was um, a pleasant surprise to see how powerful an effect it could have recently we've been looking at what's happening in the brains of people who experience hypnosis and we found some things going on that are very consistent with what we understand the phenomenon to be and help us realize that it is a real uh usable uh treatment technique so we find that when you hypnotize people in the scanner you you turn down activity in a part of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex there's a Singular cortex is like a C face down in the middle of your brain. Uh, and the front of it is, uh, is part of what we call the salience network. It teaches us uh, how to uh, pay attention to things that are potential threats, for example. Um, and uh, so it, it, it's a, it's a pattern context detector that says, this could be trouble. You better switch over to here. It's, it's a part of the brain that is uh, manipulated by people in social media now. So when you suddenly get some feed that says, you know, there's somebody threatening people in your neighborhood or look at what happened to this person when they thought they were safe and they weren't. Right? So it pulls your attention away. So in hypnosis, you turn down activity in that area. You're less worried about what other danger or distraction uh, is coming along. It... It also uh, connects the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which helps us think and plan the executive control network with the insula, which is a part of the salience network that is a mind-body channel. So it's that part of the brain that was used when we turned down gastric acid secretion, for example. And we have an inverse functional connectivity between the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the posterior cingulate cortex, which is a part of the brain that we call the default mode network, where when you're not doing much you're just thinking and reflecting about yourself. The default mode network is active, it's turned down in meditation, for example. And in hypnosis you disconnect, when you're engaged in hypnotic activity, you're disconnecting from activity uh, in that part of the brain. So that's the sort of mechanism of dissociation, disconnecting one part of experience for another. So we're learning that, we're learning that uh, people who are highly hypnotizable have more inhibitory neurotransmitters in their dorsal anterior cingulate, the GABA system, which is triggered by anti-anxiety agents, for example. So you have kind of your own anti-anxiety pharmacopoeia right there in the middle of your brain when you're highly hypnotizable.
0: Uh, Okay, well, I can see, you know, just because we're now getting, you know, a scientific understanding of just how effective a treatment this actually is it must be so frustrating for somebody in your shoes to have the associations with stage hypnosis. And, you know, I can just imagine that would be very frustrating. It's almost like we need two different names for, or the, 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 the things. Um, yes. You mentioned there, you know, meditation as well. I'm curious, what, what would you say the major difference between hypnosis and meditation are Dr. Spiegel?
1: Well, uh, Meditation, uh, you know, hypnosis is the oldest Western conception of a psychotherapy. It's the first time a talking interaction was thought to have therapeutic potential. Meditation has a very old tradition in the East. Um, and meditation is similar, but not the same. It's a practice uh, in which you uh, will do a body scan, you'll check out different parts of your body. You try to cultivate open presence where you just allow things to happen without judging or evaluating them and let them flow through you like uh, uh, a wind going by. Um, and, and you try to cultivate compassion, your sense of connection with other people. Hypnosis involves this absorption, dissociation and suggestibility. It's the, the uh, a different but related kind of triad. The, the goal of meditation is to kind of become a different sort of person who is more open, less judgmental. Um, and that's, that's all, that's a good thing, but it is not primarily meant as a, as a treatment adjunct. It's meant as a way of being. And the recommendation is often uh, John kabat you know, asks people to, to meditate 30 minutes twice a day. Um, hypnosis is more Western. It's more problem focused. It's more use it to, to control your pain, control your stress. And so it can be much briefer and quicker. And the idea is not to make you a hypnotized person all the time, it's to, or teach you to be using hypnosis other than using it to help solve the problem uh, that you're trying to deal with. So it's more, uh, it's briefer and more of a treatment intensive approach. Mm, Okay, okay, now in terms of I think maybe
0: now would be a good point to transition to hypnotizability and maybe cover some cover some ground there. Um, does hypnotizability correlate
1: with anything? You know, things like openness to experience. Is there any link there? With well, yes, there there is. Uh, Aki Tellegen at the University of Minnesota developed a scale he called absorption scale, um, and absorption is a tendency to get so caught up in experiences that you kind of lose your awareness. So you get caught up in a movie or a sunset. Um, You, you know, I get so absorbed in your work that you discover that it's eight o'clock and you've missed dinner, um, that people who have those intensive self-altering experiences um, also tend to be more highly hypnotizable. And it makes sense when you realize that you know, the old idea that the only way to hypnotize someone was to have them watch a dangling watch for half an hour and count upstairs and downstairs and all this um, uh, is not the case, that people who are hypnotizable can shift into a hypnotic state in a matter of seconds, not minutes or hours. And so it would be strange indeed if you had this ability and you didn't spontaneously use it. And that's what you see. Another example is good actors. You know, the method in acting is you just become the person you're playing. And so it's a kind of dissociation where you dissociate your ordinary orientation to who you are and you just enter somebody else's persona. And when you tell many good actors, God, you were fantastic in that role, they look a little puzzled because saying, I was just being that person. know, no big deal. That's just what I did. So um, uh, absorption is uh, something that goes along with pe- being highly hypnotizable. Interesting.
0: Um, so you talked there about the watch moving back and forward. I've heard you say in, in an interview that uh, whenever they were first inventing the car in, in yes. the early
1: days, they were worried. They were be worried, worried that people would be hypnotized by the windshield wipers going back and forth. They were afraid. They, they literally it took them a while to get them legalized. Now, of course, you know, there's nothing magical about moving your eyes back and forth. It's just narrowing the focus of attention on something. And fortunately, we tend not to look at the windshield wipers; we look through them um, driving cars. So I don't know of anybody who's gotten stuck in a hypnotic state uh, when the windshield wipers are going. But uh, it is uh, it is true that if you're very hypnotizable, you can go into these altered states uh, very quickly and easily. And highly hypnotizable people are more able to and more likely to do that. It's scary to think,
0: you know, from your experience. For people that are highly hypnotizable just how su- suggestible are we as you know as a species
1: well we are we are pretty suggestible and that's why you know people people will swallow big lies you know they'll take a distorted i mean it could not be more clear that you know listen to what's going on in congress right now that you know trump you know, we all heard him we heard trump you know telling Raffensperger to find him 11,000 votes so he could steal the election in Georgia. And yet people think that he won the election and uh, he didn't do anything wrong. You know, you just spin a story. You know, Hitler did the same thing. You know, he said that it's the big lie. People, you know, little lies you get caught in, big lies, you know, people just say, well, that's the reality, you know. And so it saddens me that there are a lot of my countrymen who who buy this nonsense. And it's, it's a kind of lesson in how the ability you know if you can alter your inner reality to say even though you've just broken your your ankle um, you you imagine your ankle wrapped in ice and it's cool tingling and numb you can change your perception of that reality to the extent that it just doesn't hurt that much and in the same way you know you have some powerful person telling you this is the way the world is and sadly there are a lot of people who will believe it so, you know, the, the, the amazing thing about our brains is how well it can um, uh, manipulate reality, how it can change the way you experience things, how imagination is very rich and we're constantly matching our imagination with what's actually going on in the world. There's no pure perception as Kant made clear. It's not, there's no unmediated connection that we have with the world. We process it through our brain, through our expectations, through our sensory signals. And we make an interpretation of what we perceive. And often that serves us very well. It helps us to get a complex and correct image or more or less correct image of what's going on in the world. But like any system, it can fail. And sometimes it can impose a mistaken impression of the world for what's actually going on. And hypnosis is a kind of limiting case where you can see how people can alter perception in a way that could be therapeutic and beneficial, but they can also alter perception in ways that are not. So um, we scapegoat people. We see people as other who are other than us in certain ways as responsible for our problems, for our weaknesses and limitations, taking things away from us. So a lot of racism and discrimination involves distortions of perception of other people and who they are and what they're like. And so while the way we use our brains can help us make social connections and strengthen them, it can also damage them and and cause us to believe things that are just flat out not true. And I think there, uh, hypnosis is helpful in sort of being a limiting case example where you can see how much you can distort reality and sometimes that's a good thing you know you suffer less because you do it and sometimes it's a bad thing you blame other people for your problems 100 percent. now i think
0: everybody that's listening to this um and that has made it this far they're just going to be very curious you know are they hypnotizable you know and that's the question. like i'm not sure if i am or not so maybe if you could tell us about the the spiegel eye roll test yeah. and could you well, talk us through it
1: Sure. So uh, my uh, father was um, using hypnosis, he was using a light on the ceiling, you know, and having people look up at the light and then close their eyes. And he began to notice that some people kept their gaze fixed on the light, even when they were closing their eyes. So you could try this if you want, Niall. Uh, so look up to the top of your head, past your eyebrows, way up. And as you keep looking up, slowly close your eyes. Yep. You would be very hypnotizable. Uh, the, this is a kind of initial approximation. Let your body float. You can you can just very easily, I would imagine, slip into a hypnotic state. Have you tried it? Have you had any experience with hypnosis? I tried with the first time.
0: Actually, um, I, I found a, a guided one of yours online. Um, I was trying to get the Reverie app, but I've yes, got an ancient good. I've got an ancient version of the iPhone, so I wasn't able to get it. So it's only oh, available in on the the new versions, but I, I find it, I find one online and it was very good. Actually. Um, it
1: uh-huh. was in another
0: interview you did, but that would be a good point just to bring in, you know, the reverie app. Um, how does yes. that work? Dr. Spiegel and can you get, maybe give me a bit
1: of, bit of background there. Sure. Well, here's, here's the app. Um, all you have to do, uh, uh, with, with the improved, uh, iOS phone that you hopefully have now is go to reverie or E V E R I. And you can download the app um, and it has a series of programs to help you relieve stress, enhance focus, improve sleep, eat well, manage pain, quit smoking. And we have some other hypnotic moments that are just a minute or so long where you get the experience and you hear my mellifluous voice giving you instructions and it's interactive. So I ask you a question about how you're responding. You give us an answer. We use AI to analyze it and then you get the next step depending on the previous answer. So I tried to make it as much like the experience in the office with me as possible. Um, And uh, we now have about 10,000 people a month who are users uh, on the app. We're helping people substantially reduce stress. We're getting about a 35% reduction in stress, uh, 25% reduction in pain. We're getting about 20% of the people who use it Uh, stop smoking, which is hard to do. Uh, And um, where I'm hoping to use what I've learned over decades of experience and clinical work, make it available to to anybody who can use it to help themselves with these kinds of problems and and other problems as well. Um, So we welcome people. We also have a website that explains more about it, www.revery.com. And uh, we have interactions, we have, uh, we get user feedback and post that on the site as well. And we welcome people to sign up for Reverie and we will have an Android app in a couple of months. We're working on that now and you can leave your email address on the website and we'll contact you when the Android site is uh, up and running. Brilliant.
0: We'll we'll link to that in the in the show notes. Um, you mentioned there about your voice. Dr. Spiegel, you do have yeah. a very hypnotic voice. You know, is it is that something you've consciously
1: worked on, or is that just the, the way it is? I think it's just the way it is. I, I try to connect with people. Um I'm, I'm a bit of a musician. I have a group and we do some sort of folk music and blues. And so I like singing. So I guess the, you know, there may be a part of it there, but I, I do try to, to use my voice in a way to just connect with people, but not to sort of you know, kind of l- lull them into something but rather to just be engaged with them. I want it to be a kind of connection <laughs> Uh, that they feel that I care about them and what they're doing and uh, I'm there to try to to help them Um, (laughs) I was interviewed once on Terry Gross's Fresh Air uh, and she was doing just a kind of straightforward interview and all of a sudden she got journalistic on me and she said uh, you know I happen to know your father is a well-known hypnotist did he ever try to hypnotize you when you were a child and I said to her I don't think so. (laughs) And she said, okay, okay. (laughs) So so yeah, I try to use my voice, but it's, it's, I am fully aware that what I'm doing is my job is to identify and help people utilize the hypnotic ability they have. I'm not projecting anything onto them. I'm just helping them to explore their own ability. Cool. I like that perspective. Um,
0: So this, you know, this summit is all geared around mental health professionals. So a few questions in this area. Um, how effective is
1: hypnosis in working with people that have gone through traumatic experiences? Uh, it can be very helpful. And uh, there's a randomized trial out of Israel showing that hypnosis has been very helpful in treating people with post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, I've used hypnosis with a lot of people who have been traumatized either earlier in life or more recently. And it can be very helpful, especially in this way. One of the ways in which we process uh, stress is interoceptively, that is we experience our own physical reactions to the stress. Um, One of the reasons uh, that that can be so helpful is um, that when you're experiencing trauma, one way you experience it is recognizing your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up, your muscles tense, you start to sweat, And that's an adaptive reaction. It's the fight or flight reaction. You're ready to do that if you need to. So, But what happens to people when they're remembering serious trauma is they feel re-traumatized. It's as if they're being attacked all over again. They're not just remembering it, they're starting to relive it. And that physical reaction gets you more frightened and it's like a snowball effect. So you're thinking about it, you feel worse, you notice you feel worse, you think about it more, you think about it more, you feel worse. With hypnosis, you can teach people to dissociate the somatic reaction from the psychological one. So for example, uh, I was asked to see a woman who had been the victim of a serious attempted rape. Um, she fought with a guy so hard she had a basilar skull fracture and had a seizure and was brought to the hospital. Um, she couldn't remember the image of the assailant's face who was getting dark. She was coming home from the store and uh, he grabbed her outside of her apartment building and was terribly upset by what was happening. And I got her hypnotized. I said, right now you're safe and comfortable. Nothing's going to happen to you physically. Imagine you're floating in a bath, a lake, a hot tub, or floating in space. And now I want you on the left side of an imaginary screen to picture an image of him. And she's, of course, upset. She's remembering it. she said, you know what? He doesn't just want to rape me. He wants to kill me. If he gets me upstairs in my apartment, he's going to kill me. So she realized on the one hand that it was even worse than she thought it was. And I said, on the other side, I want you to picture what you did to protect yourself. And she said, you know, he's surprised that I'm fighting him that hard. He didn't think I would. And so she realized on the one hand, it was worse than she thought. And on the other hand, that she probably saved her life. She was feeling guilty that she'd gotten herself so badly injured. Um, And so it helped her to change her perspective on what was going on. And part of it was by using the hypnotic intense concentration to dissociate her physical experience from her mental one. And so it can be very helpful in treating that kind of post-traumatic reaction to put their traumatic experience into perspective. Um, And so uh, that's one way in which it can be very helpful in treating even severe post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, You you mentioned there that the
0: the woman, she felt there was a bit of guilt there, and I heard you say in another interview that we'd rather feel guilty than helpless. Can you tell us a a bit about that there? Yeah, Uh,
1: thank you. I appreciate the serious preparation you've done for the interview. Um, yeah, unfortunately, that's true. And it's, it's one, on the one hand, the advantage of guilt is that you feel, you have the fantasy that you're in control. The, you know, the experience of trauma, it's not, it, it's the worst part of it is not pain, it's not fear, it's helplessness. It's that for a period of time, you are made into an object. Somebody else takes control of your body, either by beating you up or sexually assaulting you or just uh, abducting you. And uh, that's a horrible feeling that you don't, you don't run your body at that time. You, somebody else is taking over. And so people would often blame themselves for events they did not control. You know, why did I go to the drugstore at three o'clock in the afternoon, you know, expecting some assailant would be hiding in a bush somewhere? And, and so, and it's even worse for children who are sexually or physically abused because, Children don't understand independent causation. It's hard enough for adults. But, you know, if you say, if something goes wrong with a three-year-old, what do they say? It's not fair. You know, they expect the world will be fair. And if a bad thing happens and the world is fair, it means that they did something wrong. And often assailants will tell them that, you know. And so children grow up with a feeling that they deserved what happened to them. And they get into relationships. that rep- replicate that. So they will... Uh, affiliate with, uh, you know, w- women who have been sexually abused as children often marry abusive men. Um, you wonder why women stay with men who beat them. You know, they'll they'll live with a guy who I wouldn't go near. Um, and uh, they think if only I make dinner right, I won't get him angry and he won't hit me again. And so um, people react, re- reenact this belief that somehow they're responsible and they've got to learn to control it. And so that sense of being inappropriately guilty for events you didn't control, not confronting your own helplessness allows people to make themselves vulnerable to the same kind of mistreatment again and again. And so that's where psychotherapy for them is very important to help them get their perspective on what they could control and what they couldn't. So interesting. Um,
0: How far would you agree with the statement that hypnosis could be thought of as a kind of exposure therapy therapy that happens internally.
1: That's an interesting thought. Um, yes, I think that's true. I think you can use hypnosis to, and, and we used it. You know, exposure therapy is a, is a very important component of psychotherapy for PTSD, leaving hypnosis aside, although it may happen spontaneously. But I think you're right that in, in the hypnotic state, you can re-confront, as that patient I mentioned a moment ago did. Um, you're to tra- have traumatic experiences, but in a different manner, in a manner in which you are not completely losing control. You're not losing physically control. And you can turn it on and turn it off. So you have this sense that you're not totally immersed in it the way you were when the trauma happened. And so it allows you, in a controlled way, to expose yourself to recollections and, in a controlled way, work through the experience and come to a different perspective on it so in a sense I think you're absolutely right that it is a kind of controlled exposure experience that can be very helpful psychotherapeutically that's uh, really
0: interesting um so there's about 50 questions I've still got to ask you but we don't have time so I've just got a couple more <laughs> okay, um, sure. for any mental health professionals at home listening to this that are like really excited about you know maybe bringing this into their work, what advice would you give them? Maybe they're already qualified and they wanna start learning how to use this in their practice.
1: Um, well, sure, I would welcome that. Uh, my late father and I have written a textbook that explains a lot of this called trance and treatment clinical uses of hypnosis. Um, I'd also say play with reverie, You know, get a feeling for what the experience is like uh, as a user and then you know you can use it to augment the treatment you use. There are good professional hypnosis societies. There's an international society of hypnosis. Uh, In the US, there's the Society for Clinical and Experimental Hypnosis, which is the more researcher focused one and the American Society for Clinical Hypnosis. They both have websites. There's division 30 of the American Psychological Association, which is a hypnosis division of professional psychologists. Um, And in Great Britain, there are a number of good professional hypnosis societies as well. Um, So I would suggest affiliating with them. There are journals published by these societies as well. Uh, The International Journal for Clinical and Experimental Hypnosis, the American Journal of Clinical Hypnosis. So I would welcome your adding it to your therapeutic repertoire and joining one of the professional organizations uh, that teaches and fosters the professional use of hypnosis and sign up for every and see see what it's like. Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. And something
0: we're asking everybody that we interview is what three books would you recommend that all mental health professionals should read? And maybe these could be three books that have impacted your own work the
1: most or just something that, yeah. Um, uh, Interesting. Uh, uh, John Kabat Zinn uh, has written uh, a number of good books on mindfulness. I think one of them is Wherever You Go, There You Are. You know, it's. Uh, It's a very interesting perspective. Um, I would read, uh, you know, Freud's first book um, was uh, about his work with hypnosis with uh, Joseph Breuer. Uh, And um, he learned about how people could go back and relive early life experiences in hypnosis. And he decided to abandoned it when a patient uh, woke up and threw her arms around his neck. And he said, I was modest enough not to attribute this to my own irresistible personal attractiveness. So he discovered transference that day and moved his chair away from the side of the couch to behind the couch and started psychoanalysis. So, uh, I found that very interesting. Um, uh, I, I, Carl Rogers is a very interesting, he, he he's written, uh, a number of books about um, uh, kind of more open exploratory psychotherapy where um, you help people to experience themselves with you and that whole idea of psychotherapy as an experience in which you try out a relationship and and one in which you can engage but examine it, uh, I think is, is an interesting approach to understanding what psychotherapy is all about. Uh, my friend and colleague, Irv Yalom, has written a number of wonderful books about psychotherapy. That are Some of them are novels, um, uh, and some of them are um, descriptions of psychotherapy. He wrote the classic text on group therapy, The Theory and Practice of Group Psychotherapy. Um, he's written a number of excellent uh, books. Uh, when Nietzsche Wept is a wonderful book, actually, that combines sort of historical fiction uh, about psychotherapy, and is a terrific book. So Irv is great. Um, uh, and uh, Daniel Mason, one other final book I'll mention uh, is, is a psychiatrist with us now at Stanford. Excellent psychiatrist, but also an excellent novelist. And he's written a book called The Winter Soldier, which is about a, uh, a, a doctor in World War I. And it's a very touching description of sort of PTSD before we knew what that was. Uh, it's well worth well worth reading. That's the Winter Soldier by Daniel Mason, yeah. Yes.
0: Great. Okay. um So yeah, Dr. Spiegel, um, I know you've got to get going. It's been an absolute pleasure to uh, speak with you Thank today you. and learn more about your work. And I suppose everybody owes you a massive debt of gratitude for you know making a serious case for hypnosis in clinical work and for helping people improve their lives and taking it away from just this thing that people do on stage for,
1: for a night out. So, um, yeah, so much appreciated. Well, thank you, Niall. I appreciate, I appreciate how carefully you uh, prepared for this interview. And uh, I think one of the things that I would leave people with is the idea is, you know, sort of try it, you'll like it, that you will know in a hurry whether it's likely to help you or not. And that's not true of many other approaches to psychotherapy or treatment. And so, it gives you an opportunity to explore a potential ability that you have and use it to help yourself live better. So I, I wish everybody the best and I hope uh, that we will rest it finally from the, the arms of the stage hypnotist and, um, and use it for the powerful therapeutic tool that it is. Thank you very much, Dr. Spiegel. You're All open, the best. Now. You too. Take care.